Welcome to the Long COVID podcast with me, Jackie Baxter. I am really excited to bring you today's episode. Please do check out the links in the show notes where you can find the podcast website, social media and support group, as well as a link to buy me a coffee if you are able. You should not rely on any medical information contained in this podcast and related materials in making medical health related or other decisions. Please do consult a doctor or other health professional. I love to hear from you. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or just want to say hey, then please do get in touch. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So here we go. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Long Covid podcast. I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Robert Grossman, who um, you will have heard the first half of this episode, hopefully. So without further ado, we are going to just crack straight on with the second half of our Q&A session with Dr. Grossman. So someone asking about microclots, are they just another piece of a big puzzle? And how can we tackle this? So microclots were found mainly by one lab using kind of an inexpensive technique by taking the blood and separating out uh, the plasma, um, creating what's called a platelet-poor plasma, and then adding in a fluorescent dye and seeing under a microscope if any clots form. Now, I don't know for sure yet um, if all these labs have taken up this. Anybody can pretty much do this in any doctor's office if you have a microscope in this fluorescent dye and a centrifuge. But um, before we hang our hat on this test, I think it needs to be validated. I mean, does it really represent clot formation inside the body or not? I don't have an answer to that. I know that uh, long COVID can make you thrombogenic as can COVID, but those are big clots. They, they can cause a heart attack or a stroke or a pulmonary clot in, um, in one of the great vessels in your lungs or kidneys or something like that. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, so are microclots even significant? Let's say they exist. Let's say it's real and they exist. Have they been proven to be significant? Are they impeding blood flow? Has that been proven? It has not. Nobody yet has shown that it's even clinically relevant or significant. So before you start administering anticoagulants, uh, which are not benign, because if you have a aneurysm, if you have a break somewhere in your body, in your blood vessel, um, you can kill yourself. This is not just me hypothesizing. This has been shown that um, they're not completely benign, okay? So you have to, you know, anything, anytime you do a treatment in, in medicine, anytime you do any action, you have to look at benefits versus risk. And I don't know if, at least right now, if the benefits outweigh the risks in every single person. So I would just be very careful with anticoagulants. Some people are placed on three different ones at the same time. And you can get into a bleeding episode. It could be from your gut. It could be from 
like I said, from an aneurysm or an AV fistula or something else in your body that you don't even know you have. And you can bleed out because you're not clotting anymore. Um, now, the anticoagulants I'm talking about are the real uh, major ones of, available from the pharmaceutical companies, not things like natokinase or streptokinase. Those also cause some anticoagulation, but I don't think it's on the same level as these other ones, and the risk is much lower of a bleed. But still, um, you know, what exactly are you treating is my question. And is it clinically relevant? If it is there, if the microclots are there, I know everybody's talking about these microclots. I've seen the studies. It's just, I'm not convinced yet that A, they actually exist, uh, and B, if there's even any clinical relevance to these microclots, you know, are they actually impeding blood flow somewhere? You know, prove it to me and, you know, I'm good. But I don't want to do a potentially harmful treatment until I'm sure that it's actually treating something. So it's a question about headache. So, yeah, looking for recommendations to retreat or reduce pain from post-COVID continuous headaches. This is in a child of 11 years. So first, I want to make sure that it's actually a headache and not scalp pain or muscle pain around the head. We know that uh, there's some headaches associated with post-COVID or long COVID. So um, I would first want to find out if there's any prior history of of headaches. If, for instance, the person had migraines before, as an example, um, it can make migraines worse or exacerbate it. So um, if these are new headaches, I would basically um, work up for, for a headache, do a full history and exam and imaging if needed, depending on the way the symptoms present themselves. And a treatment could be symptomatic, just treating the symptoms, or there may be more involved, again, depending on the cause of the headache. And there's so many, many, many causes of headaches without knowing more information. It's really impossible for me to um, basically say any more on this. But everything always starts with the history and physical, and then we move from there. Are they taking any medications? Some medications can cause headaches as well. Ah, okay, so it's possible it's a side effect from something else. Right. Can stomach ganglion block help with POTS? I think we've covered that one, haven't we? So, yeah, I think we covered that last time. Um, the majority of patients do feel better, even if they have uh, POTS as part of long COVID. Like I said, a small percentage of, of people, and uh, it's small, but they can destabilize their POTS and have increased fatigue and or brain fog um, for a short period of time. It is temporary, but it can happen in somebody with POTS and long COVID uh, post a ganglion block. I've seen that in a very small percent of people, but it's there. Sure. Um, I will pop a link to the previous episode into the show notes for this one, because there is a load more information in, in there that we talked about previously. Um, what is best for low heart rate? So I think we tend to see more high heart rate, but, um, but here we're talking about lower heart rate, which I think is a bit more unusual. It is unusual. Um, it is unusual. 
So uh, I would, again, start with the history and physical and uh, try to determine why the heart rate is low. Um, sometimes the medications people are on, um, like a beta blocker, for instance, or a calcium channel blocker can lower heart rate. And um, there may be another reason why heart rate is low. And low, we're talking about under 60. I would see what their prior baseline was and uh, try to get to the root of the problem. Sure. Um, I think something that I've noticed, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that are now, as a result of having long COVID, that are tracking their heart rate and their breathing yes. rate and their HRV and their, you know, everything, yes. um, because they're trying to keep a handle on it, which is, is probably quite useful in a lot of people. But there's something you just said about what was their previous baseline. I wouldn't have known what my previous baseline was because I never measured it before. So I suppose this is something to think about, isn't it? You know, what is low and what is high compared to what you had before? Or, you know, it's person to person, isn't it? Yes, you need to know what you were before. I'm I'm naturally low. Um, I tend to be in the 40s and, and 50s. Some people are are like that because they're athletes or they were athletes before and their heart rate runs uh, below 60 all the time. So it really kind of depends on, yeah, you do need to know baseline and hopefully you've, you would have had that checked some, at some point uh, during a physical or doing, uh, during a routine EKG or something else where it's documented. But yes, you do need to know where your baseline is so you know if it's abnormal or not. It may be normal for you. And if, if that's the case, you may not be having uh, much of a sympathetic overdrive. And I would be careful with things like uh, vagus nerve stimulation, because that may theoretically lower your heart rate even more. We'll be right back. I'm interrupting myself for a second to tell you about long COVID breathing. The fabulous Vicky Jones and I have teamed up to bring you long COVID breathing. We are both passionate about sharing our expertise and experience of the breath and how incredibly helpful that can be with long COVID. We've worked together to develop a course that is specifically tailored to those with long COVID. It's a six-week course with 12 sessions, all delivered online. The community feel and learning that we're all sharing is such a joy. To find out more information and to sign up for our courses, workshops and other shorter sessions, please check out the link below, longcovidbreathing.com or email longcovidbreathing at gmail.com to start your breathing journey with us. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So we've got a question about, um, I think, diet and supplements. So again, this is probably a huge area. Um, and uh, I have actually interviewed people who are nutritional therapists. So it might be might be worth listening to some of them. But what would your potted couple of minutes worth of advice for diet and sort of any any supplementation vitamins, that sort of thing? Well, I mean, if we're talking about globally, um, and we're talking about somebody who does not have issues with parosmia or anosmia or anything that would uh, prevent them from eating a balanced diet. The first thing I would consider is, is, is there an MCAS component in your long COVID? And if there is, uh, you may want to uh, focus on foods that do not increase your histamine levels or that can um, stabilize your mast cells. So without going into specifics, you can guide, you, you, they can look it up, uh, what's involved. As far as supplementation, if you're taking... A well-balanced diet, you may not need anything additional. However, however, uh, in long COVID, I have found 
as I said, iron tends to be low. Uh, and I think most of these are from either one or the other or both, either um, decreased absorption because of the gut dysbiosis that happens or um, and from increased utilization. Your body needs more because it's undergoing chronic inflammation. Uh, vitamin D is another. I find this low in a lot of people with long COVID. Um, I look at most of the B vitamins, uh, B12 and 6 are often low. Occasionally, we find B12 high. And some of the other B vitamins occasionally are low, even though it's so hard for them to be low if you're basically eating anything, just about, uh, like B1 and B2. But uh, the majority of people are going to have those, um, those few things low. And if you find them low, and how do you find them low? You got to test for them. It's got to, you got to do a blood test. Don't assume they're low. You got to test. And if they are low and you st- you're already eating a well-balanced diet, uh, that's including most of the nutritional content, then yes, I would supplement. Um, but again, I would still do this in coordination with a physician you trust or medical health care provider you trust. Most of them are not going to cause a problem if you supplement, but iron, for instance, can. Vitamin D has a potential to, but it's unlikely. But still, like I said, it's best to coordinate this with with a medical professional you trust. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So what tests and labs are helpful in determining the root cause of our long COVID problems? This person's suggesting spike protein, microclots and dysautonomia, but we obviously know that there's many more than just just those ones. So what should people be requesting from their healthcare professionals? Those tests won't really help. Um, They're not blood tests that can determine those things. I mean, dysautonomia, like I said, is mainly history, physical and performing some of these indirect tests, including heart rate variability, tell test, things like that. Um, it's really beyond the scope of what I can answer. There's a lot of blood work you want to look at. But in general, um, you're going to look at a CBC with differential. You're going to look at the metabolic profile. Um, and when I say differential, it's going to break down the cells into what cells are in the sample. Uh, both white blood cells and red cells. And you're going to want to look at some of the um, inflammatory markers, such as CRP. There's some interleukins you can look at. Uh, There's nothing so far that's going to be diagnostic for long COVID. It's really mainly a clinical diagnosis based on symptoms. You know, you can go into a very detailed blood work and looking at all the interleukin and cytokines. I'm not so sure how helpful it is, but some people may may gleam some uh, benefit from knowing that one of their interleukins is high versus another. I don't know how helpful it is, though, in the in the course of treatment. Um, you can look at clotting factors, for instance. Uh, you could do it indirectly, or you can measure uh, these these uh, proteins um, specifically, like I said, it depends on how involved you want. But remember, these are not cheap tests, and um, insurance may not want to cover some of these or all of these. And um, you can actually get thousands of dollars in uh, in lab bills from trying to get these. And I was always taught, you know, if you go back to medical school, you know, medical school one hundred and one is don't order a test unless it's going to alter your treatment course. 
So is it just for the sake of knowing or is it actually going to change what you do? So depending on who you go, they may have different beliefs, but that's just how I feel about it. Um, don't order it unless you expect to suspect something and you think it's going to alter if you're going to do A or B. If, if you're going to do C, regardless of the test results, then why are you ordering the, the test? It doesn't really help. That seems to make sense, yeah. Um, so what treatments are most effective for those with severe neurological issues from COVID, such as myoclonic jerks and speech difficulties? So we know that these are neurologic. The person asking this question knows it's neurologic. There is no real best treatment yet for something like this. Some people do improve after a stellar ganglion block. But uh, again, the amount of people that I've treated with these uh, symptoms is very, very low. So it's really hard to make a general recommendation. It's inflammation of the nerve pathways, uh, inflammation in the brain or different areas of the brain. Uh, again, we don't know why some people develop this versus other symptoms, but uh, we do know that neuropsychiatric symptoms are the main part of long COVID, even though it, ha- it involves every single system. No, si- no system is immune from the effect of uh, long COVID. So uh, there is no, really no, no best or even a definitive treatment for something like this yet. So if inflammation is the cause, then tackling the inflammation might be a route to go. Yeah. And I mean, some doctors treat these with um, nerve stabilizing agents such as gabapentin or Lyrica or Cymbalta. Um, Some people think that they're toxins and won't take them. Uh, I'm just saying what I've seen. Uh, So we've got another question about healing the gut. We touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, This is someone saying long COVID gave me gut issues. So what would be your advice there? Um, anything different to what we said earlier? So long COVID causes gut issues in just about every person with long COVID. Uh, whether you have symptoms of gut issues or not is not really relevant to this. Even if you don't have abdominal pain, diarrhea, or, or bloating, or issues with your gut, you could still have gut issues from long COVID. And um, the issues are several fold. One is, is that your microbiology or the microtome of, um, microbiome of the, of the gut is changed. Some, there may be some pathological bacteria, virus, or uh, fungus or yeast in there. And one way to treat that is with a good probiotic room temperature stable. Don't get anything that requires refrigeration. If you have MCAS or histamine sensitivity, you would need to look up which bacteria not only uh, exacerbate that, but some of them don't exacerbate it, but don't exactly stabilize mast cells. Some do. There's a group of um, probiotics you can get specifically if you have MCAS or histamine sensitivity. And I recommend you do that because your symptoms will get worse if you take a regular old probiotic. Um, Second is stabilizing the blood gut barrier which is very similar to the blood uh, brain barrier, which exists in our brain. And it's basically to prevent uh, pathogens, toxins, and um, basically these two that from 
translocating, moving from the gut into the bloodstream. And if you think about it, you know, food and drink and whatever you you take in is not sterile. Um, even if it's been cooked or prepared, there's going to be some uh, bacteria, and viral and uh, yeast or, or fungal matter on it. Uh, even if it was wrapped up nice and tight and everything, it's not, it's not a sterile product. So our gut is meant to handle these kind of things. That's why we have uh, immune cells and it's one of the most developed immune systems in our gut uh, from a lot of other parts of our body. So uh, trying to repair that, um, and there's a few peptides suggested for that. Um, one of them is uh, BCP-157, KPV is another. There's, there's several others that can be helpful, but uh, some people would do just fine with the probiotic and will repair just from time and um, fixing the, the irregularity in the, in the microbiome. So those are two things and the rest will follow. So things like um, malabsorption that happens because you have these issues going on uh, should correct itself over time once the gut repairs. Sure. Do you have any insight into how the adrenals can be affected by long COVID? Yes. Um, So what do the adrenals do? They excrete or secrete um, epinephrine or epinephrine as a response to an increased signal from the sympathetic nervous system. And the reason that happens is it's basically an effector because the sympathetic nervous system is not connected to every, every organ and, um, and body area like the parasympathetic is. So it uses a chemical way to activate everything. Um, epinephrine, as you know, makes your heart race and your blood vessels constrict and your bronchioles to dilate. So that's kind of one of the process. And when people talk about adrenal dumps, that's because your sympathetic nervous system is um, activated a lot of time. And the adrenal is just doing what the sympathetic nervous system is telling it to do. Um, Your body also secretes or excretes uh, cortisol to try to deal with all that stress. So with cortisol in your system, your sugar will come go up as well um, because that's part of the fight or flight response. Um, so it's trying to calm it down. It's always a give and take with the autonomic nervous system. Right. That's fascinating, isn't it? How it's all so connected. Like everything is connected to the same thing, isn't it? Yes. So I've got a question about skin on the lower legs. What could cause the skin on my lower legs to feel stiff? If I sneeze, I feel it in my lower legs. I'm not exactly sure what the person means by stiffness. Um, Some people have changes in their skin. Part of it could be due to the MCAS. Part of it could be due just to the um, connective tissue changes during long COVID. I'm not really sure how to answer that, except that way. Um, They say, I assume it's a nerve issue. It's not, I mean, stiffness is not typically a nerve issue. It's more of a muscle, tendon, or ligament issue. Well, that narrows it down a little bit. Okay, so we've got another question about the stellate ganglion block. I understand the stellate ganglion block is a reboot to the sympathetic nervous system. If one has the SGB but still has spike proteins, will the SGB be effective? Should we take steps to repair both areas? I know we touched on this earlier. 
Right. Well, the, the whole spike protein thing is still um, somewhat speculative, whether some people have it or not. So I don't know if there's a definitive test. I mean, I could be wrong and there is, but um, I haven't I haven't seen it yet. Uh, that's not something I typically deal with. But one really doesn't have anything to do with the other. If it is the spike protein uh, continuing to cause the chronic inflammation, then yes, you'd, you'd want to uh, stop that process if possible. Um, you know, things like NATO kinase can help. And I just don't know what percentage of people actually have circulating spike proteins compared to not. I don't know if there's been any studies done looking at demonstrating. It's very speculative, as I said. It's not definitive. So it's it's a hypothesis, not even a theory. It's a hypothesis still out there. But because it's not, it's not really known, I don't know. Um, I mean, if you want to do a round of NATO kinase, um, or basically a treatment that um, is known to help with the proteins, uh, that's fine. But I don't think it's really related to the stellar ganglion block, except that you may have a resurgence or recurrence if, if there's still something in your system that's causing the inflammatory reaction. So I think the next question is about specifically coming to you as a patient. Um, why do you have to see a specialist before getting treatment from you? Is it because you need a diagnosis first? I don't necessarily need someone to see a specialist before they come see me. I confirmed that this was either COVID-related uh, or vaccine-related in some sense, but you don't necessarily have to see a specialist but uh, if you if you are curious if it could be something else besides long COVID, I would. But it's not absolutely necessary. Right. Why is there typically a delay in symptoms after infection? I think this might be different for different people. So maybe the question should be, why could there be a delay in symptoms after infection? Because it's chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation takes time to form. You may start with an acute inflammatory reaction, and um, in, in some people, they develop the cytokine storm, and uh, because the cytokines are very pro-inflammatory, at least some of them are, it may set the chronic inflammation process in motion, and that takes time. Uh, you don't get chronic inflammation you know, one day after infection. You just don't. Uh, by definition, chronic inflammation in general, um, it takes, takes uh, you know, a few months to develop. Right. So that could explain why there seem to be quite a lot of people, certainly, who had their initial infection and then maybe seem to be kind of okay for a couple of months and then boom. Right. And then it hits. It, on the surface, it looks fine. But if you dig deeper, there's, there's things happening uh, under the surface. And if you get tested, you'll see those inflammation markers up. That's interesting. That's what happened to me. Right. Why are some people affected and not others? We don't have an answer for that yet. We don't know why long COVID happens in a fraction of the population and not, uh, and not the others. There's been a lot of speculation and talk about people who are more at risk um, such as women compared to men, for instance, um, such as uh, the age of the person. Um, young people tend to be less likely to develop it than all older people. People with 
autoimmune conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, um, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and there's you know there's several others um, that tend to be more at risk. I mean the the increase in risk is small, but it's there. And certain viral infections or bacterial infections can put you at risk, such as Lyme disease, prior Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr virus. But the thing about Epstein-Barr is, is who hasn't had mononucleosis as a kid or as a teenager? So I, I don't know. I mean, I think the majority of the population has it or has been infected with it at some point. And I, I wouldn't use that as a, one of the risk factors because just almost everybody has it. So that's all we have right now. We don't know beyond that uh, why some people develop it and others don't. Um, there may be some genetic predisposition to it as well, which we don't know yet. It's just speculation. So we've got another question about severe brain fog. I think we sort of touched on that earlier, didn't we? We did. There's a lot of different potential causes for brain fog. You know, one is the chronic inflammation that occurs in, or could occur in the brain. Another, there's a um, vascular change or blood flow change that's happening due to the sympathetic overdrive in the brain. Um, third could be from lack of sleep or lack of good sleep, deep sleep that people are getting. Um, fourth could be the medications that some people are on. So there, there's a lot of potential causes for the brain fog. And you could say the same thing for the fatigue as well. And the last one I'm going to mention is the gut. You know, if we're talking about a dysbiosis or having pathogens in there, that could be uh, sending toxins directly to the brain. And we already know there's a gut brain axis, and that's actually been shown to cause chronic fatigue as part of one of the causes of chronic fatigue. Yeah. So there's definitely some, some ideas to follow up at least there. Um, there's a wee question about, we've covered tinnitus already, uh, but how does COVID cause parosmia and dysgeusia? So most people who um, develop issues with smell initially develop anosmia, no taste or smell, uh, either during the COVID infection or immediately after. And um, some people handle it well, some people don't. And what happens within anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months is that um, either the smell will come back or the smell will turn into parosmia and dysgeusia. So the way I look at this is kind of um, a brownout reset. Um, your body tries to fix it, but it doesn't quite get there. And um, you need the reset of the system in order for it to work. Uh, this may be, again, regional blood flow changes that happen from the sympathetic overdrive for people who have it. Uh, it may be um, the autonomic contribution to the area. I mean, obviously, um, we know the vagus, at least, is involved partly with taste, maybe not smell, but taste. And the exact mechanism is unknown. We do know in the beginning, in the beginning of the infection, the issue is direct invasion into the epithelium and the support cells. So these nerves don't just sit there naked and exposed. They're surrounded by support cells and some epithelium to protect them. And we know that COVID can infect those cells. We also know that COVID can infect 
nerve tissue. But uh, I think the majority of the issue is, is that there's uh, some damage to the, to the epithelial uh, cells and the support cells in the nose, in the olfactory bulb area. And um, while that may repair, it needs kind of a reboot to get it going again. And the, the body's attempt to reboot, unfortunately, sometimes ends up with parosmia and dyscusia. And you need to have an outside source rebooted to get it uh, to working normal again. If this was damaged and you did a stellar ganglion block and um, you get a result within 30 seconds after the block, damage can't repair that fast. It just can't. Chronic inflammation can't be reversed that quickly. So whether it's one of those mechanisms I mentioned or by some unknown mechanism that's still yet to be discovered, um, it's a functional problem. It's not a physical structural problem. And one final question, how do we get others, particularly doctors who aren't compassionate like yourself to take us seriously? So I think this is a sort of counter to some of the gaslighting that some people might've been experiencing. I mean, the best way is just to um, open yourself up to learning new things and looking at some of the studies and what's out there and um, recognizing and realizing that long COVID is not in people's heads. It's an actual medical problem and it is associated with chronic fatigue. It's associated with POTS and it's associated with MCAS. And it's a multi-systemic condition that requires a multidisciplinary approach to, to treat or, you know, it's not just one physician. It's, you know, but the bottom line is, is uh, believing your patient and listening is you know, really the only way people can get beyond this. Uh, like I, like I mentioned earlier, chronic fatigue used to be in this category. Nobody believed it was real. And fibromyalgia used to be in this category and people get sent to psychiatrists all the time uh, saying it's all in their heads. Nothing was coming back positive on and any blood work and any uh, MRI or imaging on any of the tests done, everything was coming back normal. So it must be in your head. Um, but this is not in people's heads. No, nobody wants to have this. I mean, nobody's seeking medical attention just for the sake of talking to a doctor. I mean, you ain't that special. Okay. Um, so they're there for a reason. They're suffering and you know, just listen, listen to your patients. Uh, don't roll your eyes. Don't, don't dismiss them. Don't cut them off. Just, just listen and uh, acknowledge and accept their symptoms as real. Even if the tests come back as normal, even if the imaging comes back as normal, it's there. It's not, we don't have a definitive test yet, but that doesn't mean that the condition doesn't exist. And uh, that's really it. I mean, just remember why you went to med school. You know, rem remember why you're doing this and hopefully it's for the right reasons. That's really all I can, I can impart. I mean, I think most, most doctors are good people and their heart's in the right place. It's just very easy to get, you know, jaded when everything comes back normal and uh, you have to take that leap of faith. And as patients, if we feel like we're not being listened to by our, our doctors, what would you recommend a patient doing in that situation? Well, I would still, I would still attempt to, uh, to talk. And if the, if the doctor is completely being dismissive, I recommend finding somebody else. That's all there is to it. I mean, 
you know, I, if the person is obviously not interested in treating long COVID, they're, they're not the right person for you or they're not able to treat long COVID. You know, they're just, they don't understand what it is. They don't want to learn anything about it and they don't want to treat it. And that's fine. Um, you know, that's why we have specialists and, you know, find somebody else. There are people out there who are interested in helping and, and do help. So it's just a matter of uh, finding them. Brilliant. Well, I think we've managed to get through our list. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we've got tons and tons of answers there. Um, if you've been listening and you've got more questions either for Dr. Grossman or for anyone else, please do get in touch. And if we get enough questions, we might do another follow-up. Sure. I'll make sure a link to that Facebook group goes into the show notes as well. Um, so if anybody's looking for that, um, well, fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure, Jackie. Thank you so much to all of my guests and to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it or at least found it useful. The Long COVID podcast is entirely self-produced and self-funded. I'm doing all of this myself. If you're able to, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash longcovidpod to help me cover the costs of hosting the podcast. Please look out for the next episode of the Long COVID podcast. It's available on all the usual podcast hosting things. And do get in touch. I'd love to hear.